9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. As you know, every so often, we get uh, uh, together with somebody who has written a book that we think is important, and we have a conversation because... We want you to see what's in the book and perhaps even buy the book. And in this particular case, um, uh, the book is by someone who has been a friend of the podcast and somebody who I think is widely admired in the United States, Dr. Lena Wen. The book is called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. Um, It is an extraordinarily good book. Uh, Lena, we're really glad to have you here with us. Um, uh, uh, what I was struck by is the journey. What I, what I was struck by was your story because, you know, you get to the place where we, you know, you're the person we know on television, uh, who talks about a lot of these issues, but you start with, um, uh, you know, a, a really classically American story um uh, of 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 sort of starting from zero and ending up in a remarkable place um and and you know that's what makes a book a great book in my mind you know it's a human story this book is a is a human story what is it that led you um to write it now well i'm glad to join you again thank you very much for having me on um I actually intended to write the book only about my experience as the health commissioner for the city of Baltimore, as in I had written the book and I'll tell you about the um, the the timeline for it, because I think it matters for the purposes of our conversation. I had my plan was to have the book be ready and be complete and be ready to publish in February of 2020. And so, great time, (laughs) right? And the initial purpose of the book was to celebrate public health and to talk about all the things that public health does in our lives that we may not necessarily think about. And I also had the the privilege when I was the health commissioner to work with some incredible people in Baltimore, and I wanted to highlight their stories and to talk about all the incredible innovations and the work that we did, for example, around the opioid epidemic that saved more than three thousand lives in a three-year period, or our Be More for Healthy Babies program that reduced infant mortality in our city by 38% in seven years. So that was the intention. But actually, in writing the book, I also came to see how my own story, coming to the U.S. as an immigrant right before I turned eight, um, how my parents really struggled, even though they worked multiple jobs and were professionals in China, we really struggled for years to try to make ends meet and to make our way in this country. And I realized that that in itself is also a story of public health. And so that's why that ended up being folded in to the story in addition to being about Baltimore. And then now that you know that the book was initially submitted in February, you'll also know what happened next, which is my publisher said to me, hey, we have a pandemic. 
And you can't write a book about public health without writing about the pandemic. So why don't we give this another go, <laughs> which is not what any author, I think, generally likes to hear. But of course, my publisher was right in this sense. And it was important that we also talked about COVID. And so actually, in a sense, um, COVID is the ultimate illustration of why public health matters and what happens when we don't focus on public health. Um, and so it's the illustration of the failures of public health. Well, I think the other portions of my book really focus on why public health is important and what it looks like when it works. Um, well, my, I guess, sympathies with the timing of the book. Um, I had a friend once who worked for 10 years on a book and published it on September 11th, 2001. And it was like about the IMF, you know, and, and it just disappeared without a trace because everybody's attention was someplace else. As that happens, though, your book could not be more timely. Um, and even though you had to revisit it, you know, at the end of the day, you come out with a book on public health when everybody is aware of the centrality of public health. And there is a massive debate in the United States on public health. But I'm willing to guess that when you were writing the book, even when you were rewriting the book in the course of 2020, you were not aware that the debate would take the turns it has taken to bring us where we are right now, where there are different kinds of challenges. Am I right about that or wrong about that? No, you're absolutely right. I thought that the biggest challenge in public health and the reason why I wrote the book, why I wrote Lifelines, is to talk about how public health needs to be visible. I was concerned that people just don't think about public health until something goes wrong. And in fact, that so much of the work that we do is prevention. Actually, the initial title for the book was Public Health Saved Your Life Today. You just don't know it um, because that is what happens to public health, right? When your work is about prevention, you have succeeded when nothing happens. <laughs> um, then, And then there's no face of it. I mean, there's no face of a child who could have gotten lead poisoned if not for the home remediation services that were done, or the face of someone who could have been incarcerated, but for the services that were provided to help them with treating drug addiction and mental health and provide social services. I mean, what is the face of something that didn't happen? And so I thought the biggest challenge was going to be to even get people to care about this issue of public health. I think now it's different, related, but different. Related is the issue of how I think public health in so many people's minds is equated with infection control. And yes, that is really important. And obviously, COVID is what happens when you don't have the public health infrastructure and we cannot respond to this pandemic. But I also am really worried that because so public health resided in the backwaters before, and for many reasons, that wasn't ideal either. But now people understand public health in a certain way, depending on the part of country they're in and depending on their partisan affiliation for the most part. I mean, there's some people who think that public health officials are great and public health has done a great job, but others see public health as somehow the enemy of the economy. 
enemy of school reopening um, as applying restrictions to people, somehow taking away individual freedoms. And I actually really worry about the move by Republican-led legislatures. And this is not a partisan, I'm not making a partisan criticism. This is a description of what's going on, that there are legislatures, there are governors that have tried to remove the authority of public health agencies. And that doesn't just affect COVID. That affects future pandemics, future outbreaks, if there is a tuberculosis outbreak, but now a local public health entity is not able to apply quarantine powers, or if there is a measles outbreak, and now um, somehow the contact tracing work and vaccination campaigns are going to be that much harder, that's a real problem. And I don't think I could have predicted that this would be the consequence a year and a half into this pandemic. Yeah, well, I, you know, I once, I think we talked about this once before, but I, for I think eight or 10 years, was on the advisory board of the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. So every couple of months, they'd get us together and we would sit and talk about big issues in public health. And one of the messages that was driven home in all of these meetings was something like 94% of the increases in life expectancy. Uh, in the past century were due to public health measures, not breakthroughs in vaccines, new science or whatever. And they had to do with things that we today consider fairly basic, many around sanitation. Um, and uh, the, you know, interest, you know, the, the, the big story that would be talked about a lot were the looming public health crises in the United States, like obesity. Um, which plays a role in COVID with comorbidity and, and so forth. But to me, you know, reading the book, listening to your story, listening to all this, what strikes me is this issue that you just touched upon, public health authorities, not a, not a you know, not, you know, not just a, a noun describing what they do, but, but, but that they have authority. You know, when somebody says you have to wash your hands in a restaurant, or you have to have certain kinds of sanitation measures, people have got to follow it in order for it to take effect. And it has to be seen as a public good. And that happened at the beginning of this century and you know, people went along with it. And the I think the average life expectancy of the American male in, 2000, in 1900 was 46 years. And, and today it's almost 40 years more than that. Uh, largely because of these things. And yet, here we are in the 21st century, and the challenge is to the authority. The challenge is to whether the government is sort of within its rights to tell you to wear a mask, which, by the way, in 1918 was not an issue open to debate. It was, you know, it was against the law in San Francisco not to wear a mask, right? So that's that decay in belief in the, the 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 role of government is a, is a huge public health challenge, isn't it? Yeah, and actually, I'm glad that you mentioned this because I spent um, a good portion of the book talking about two things that are even more relevant now than even when I wrote this um, months ago. One is how public health is not just about the science; it's also about winning over hearts and minds. And we really are seeing this now. I mean, you could have the best science in the world, but if the way that you're explaining it 
is in a way that people may not understand or they don't find credible. Um, people are not going to follow that advice. And in times of crisis, people are scared. They are going to be able to do things that they, don't, not, they normally would not do. And it takes a lot to convince people to win over hearts and minds. And that's a lot of the work that lies ahead of us, that you can get the science right on the masks. You can have these great scientific discoveries of, the, of these safe and effective vaccines. But if people don't wear masks, if people don't trust the vaccines and are not believing in them, then we're going to see surges in infections, no matter how great our science is. It's actually public health at the end of the day and winning over public trust that is really crucial. Well, and it's, then, also, it's also got a long-term consequence. If, if you, you know, it's not just some governors or ex-presidents or people are lying or spreading disinformation. It's that they're discrediting institutions. And so the problem is not just with the current outbreak, it's with all the outbreaks to come. When there is a large group of people out there who say, I don't believe them. I don't believe what they say. I don't believe in vaccines. I don't, I'm not gonna be guided by that or I'm gonna go and, and, and listen to Dr. QAnon. Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, I'm gonna say something a bit controversial that I'm sure some of your listeners who otherwise would agree with me on on COVID-19 might not agree with, which is that I think that the key to success in some ways of public health, not in every part of the country, but in many parts of the country, actually depends on local health officials not talking about COVID-19. As in, unfortunately, we've gotten to this point where the pandemic and masks and vaccines and even basic restrictions or basic processes, protocols to keep people safe are so polarized and are now in the middle of culture wars that the more we focus on if that's what people equate with public health is going to damage what health, health agencies are able to do in the future. I think that depending on where people are in the country, if they know that there is already distrust of public health authorities, they should focus on all the other work that the local health department does. For example, and this is what I initially was writing in Lifelines to illustrate, but there's so much work that people do every day, depending on where they are in the country, that I'm sure a lot of people may not realize. There are health departments that oversee food safety and do restaurant inspections to prevent foodborne illness. They do animal control because there is a link between animal violence or violence against animals and violence and cruelty against humans. Um, they are running senior centers. They are overseeing primary care and family health care services. They're providing food. They're helping with shelter. They're providing housing resources. I mean, these are the untold stories of public health that I think many people aren't realizing. And frankly, these other things are not controversial the way that COVID is. Should COVID be controversial? Of course not. But because it is, I think one way to try to depoliticize public health is to emphasize all these other great things that public health agencies do every single day. And I hope that people will take heed that, in, I mean, I'm not saying to stop with vaccine education or to stop with, with talking about masks. But sometimes you need to earn people's trust and talking about something that people don't want to talk about and is so polarized and politicized, that may not be the right way of going about things. So let's go back to the beginning. You come to this country, you're eight years old. You said 
that your experience in arriving in this country led you to public health. How's that? Well, when I was very young, when I was, um, my, my parents and I came, so I was, you mentioned that I had just turned eight um, or was just about to turn eight when we immigrated here. Um, it wasn't long after that, maybe I was 10 or so, when I saw a neighbor child who was living in the unit next to us die in front of me because he had asthma and his grandmother was too afraid to call for help because their family was undocumented. She was afraid that if she called for medical help that the immigration authorities would come and they might get deported. Now, the problem was not her, was not that she didn't call. The problem is that, as I realized from an early age, that we live in a society where people are not valued the same, where by virtue of who people are and where they are born and whether they have money or whether they have health insurance, that they get different access to care. And in fact, that we do not, as this society, we do not view healthcare and health to be the human right that I believe that it is. And so I very much wanted to enter medicine early on because I wanted to serve people in the types, in the kinds of communities that I come from, people who otherwise may not be able to get the care that everybody needs. Um, so that shaped my desire to enter medicine, but it was actually working in the ER which was my my goal because I never wanted to be in a position where I had to turn somebody away because of lack of ability to pay. And I knew that the ER treats all comers, but it was also in the ER that I saw how much it's not just about the medical care that we deliver. It's also about all these other factors in people's lives. I mean, what am I going to do if I tell my patient to eat healthier because they have diabetes and they tell me, but they live in an area where they have to take two buses and then walk 10 blocks to get healthy produce. And even if they get there, it's whole foods and they can't afford the food. I mean, there are so many other factors in our patients' lives, the food that they eat, the housing they have access to, the air that they breathe, that determines how well and how long they live. As you said very well from your experience at the Bloomberg School um, here in Baltimore, all these other social determinants of health very much impact health, but also health is essential to all these other areas too. And so one of the main reasons, again, writing lifelines, I wanted to make the case that if somebody, if their number one issue is public safety, then we need to make the case that treating addiction, mental health issues as the diseases that they are, instead of incarcerating people, that is really important as, as a public safety issue. If our children are hungry, if our children have asthma um, that's that's um, that's making them uh, miss school if they now don't have glasses to be able to see then they're not going to be able to learn and so can we see that addressing health is also essential to addressing education and so on i think um, much of the book is about to making this making the case for public health and how it actually ties into every aspect of our lives so we've got just five ten minutes left i want to ask you two questions that tie into what you just said and what's happened in the course of the past year, um, but not talking about COVID specifically. One is uh, you are the health commissioner of Baltimore. Baltimore is a city that is full of people like you described who are um, uh, without financial resources that 
live in food deserts, who do not have access to healthcare, they may not have uh, health insurance. And one of the things about the events of the past year is that we've realized how unequal distribution of health resources leads to unequal outcomes. And, and there have been you know, devastating differences in how this pandemic has affected us. But you know, the, the, the question is, are, is this gonna produce any movement towards more equitable distribution of resources you know, you know, because there is public health inequality in America today, uh, in in places like Baltimore. Do, do, are, do you think this will help, or do you think, um, you know, we 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 haven't made much progress? Well, I definitely think that the pandemic has shed light on disparities. I mean, those of us working in public health aren't, we're, we, we're not new to the idea of health disparities. And COVID did not create health disparities, but it did unmask them. It did unearth them. We've seen that it's not the virus doing the discriminating, that it's actually our unequal systems, whether it's access to healthcare, access to transportation, or more deeply ingrained systemic inequities that have led us to where we are with unequal outcomes, depending on um, uh, um, depending on people's income or race and where they and, and where they live during the pandemic. So I definitely think that there is attention to this issue, the Biden administration, much to their credit, has also focused on equity. And I think we really need to kind of lay the groundwork and and talk about equity for a moment. Equity is not about adding, taking years of life from one group of people and adding it to others. <laughs> I mean, that's not the point of addressing disparities. You're not trying to make everybody equal and going to the lowest common denominator. Rather, you're saying that we have to address care for the most vulnerable and that by so doing, we're able to lift all boats. Um, if that's the right terminology. I, I, this is my this is the issue with English as a second language. I think I speak English well, but some of my my phrases are not are not completely right. But the idea, all boats rise, right? There is a way for us to be doing this. And so, gave me the example from from Baltimore. We had set metrics for health in our city. Of course, we we do. We're a, a, a health agency, but in addition to setting health metrics, we also said we're going to set equity metrics. And specifically, we said we're very proud of the fact that our Be More for Healthy Babies program reduced infant mortality 38% in seven years. We also were very proud of the fact that we reduced the gap between black and white infant mortality in our city during the same period by over 50%. That's an example of how you're able to do both of these things, improve health for all, but also reduce disparities. And I do think there's increased attention to this issue. What I worry about, though, is again that we are equating public health with infection control. There are so many other public health issues that are not attended to. And in fact, resources have been diverted away from them because of COVID. Understand as to why. I mean, um, health departments were already so stretched when it came to resources before. And I understand that we need to address the coronavirus pandemic. However, we also had the opioid ep epidemic. We also had the obesity epidemic. We had unmet need when it comes to mental health. All these issues have not gone away. And I hope that there is increased recognition of these issues and that we can now focus on these issues too and not just be 
have our blinders on and focus on infection control? Well, for, first of all, let me say your English is better than my English. Of course, I'm <laughs> I'm from New Jersey, and so that explains that perhaps. But with regard to the rising tide um, analogy, you know, I think too often the rising tide analogy says, well, if the rich get richer, then it helps everybody else, and that's not what you mean. What you I, I believe what I believe what you really mean is if we lift the people at the bottom, everybody gets better. And which is a slightly different idea. And and this is what we've seen recently with this outbreak, whereas there are these pockets that aren't dealing with it and it puts everybody at risk. And by the way, there's a global public health consequence of that. If 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 sub small portions of the population in Latin America, Africa or India aren't getting this disease addressed, it's a, it remains a risk to all of us. And I, you know, I think that's a, another consequence of this. But as the last question, you, you, you sort of led into where I wanted to go. Because uh, as I was reading your book, I thought also of the book by our colleague Rosa Brooks, who's you know, a law professor, but she has spent a part of the past few years as a, a police officer in Washington, DC. She wrote a book about policing. And one of the things that struck me was that a lot of the time we have the police handling public health issues um, and, uh, you know, notably, for example, um, uh, the, the mental health, where we, we don't have the facilities, we, 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 we don't fund mental health care, people end up on the street, they end up being held, dealt with not by public health, but by, by the police. And of course, in the, court, in the course of the past year, we've heard a lot of this defund the police and and all of that. What I think it's really meant is is refund our governments. And and you know clearly one area that you know it, the the police should not be our frontline mental health professionals. Although you must have encountered the fact that very often they were in Baltimore. Um, are there other areas like that where you think we've got to actually expand the ambit of the work of public health or have them you know, take the lead in places where the police or others are doing it? I really strongly believe in partnership. Um, and um, I had actually written a, a post column some time ago about this idea of public health and public safety working together, that reimagining, what we should be doing is reimagining public safety and not saying the police have no role, but to understand who is best suited to do what job and in what way together. I mean, I gave examples of this column about how the police actually were a great partner with us, along with the state's attorney's office on a program called LEAD, Law Enforcement assisted diversion where individuals who are caught with small amounts of drugs will be offered treatment instead of incarceration or um, that uh, the police also we trained the police on naloxone carrying Narcan so that they could also save lives and that was also and they also played a role in the work that we were doing in public health as well I think many similar examples for education you wouldn't say that the health department is supposed to take the lead on all educational efforts however I oversaw school health 
called the Baltimore and ran health suites in every one of our 180 or so schools and could definitely see how health and wellness play a significant role into well-being and the ability of, of kids to be able to learn in school too. We had a program, for example, to reduce um, absenteeism by providing additional care for children with asthma. We had telepsychiatry and uh, started telepsychiatry and mental health services in our schools. That's also something that I think is a part of it. And so I very much agree with you about this concept of expanding the understanding of public health. Not that public health needs to be leading every effort, but that using a public health approach can be useful in many fields. One of the programs that I led in Baltimore actually was Safe Streets, hiring individuals who are in many cases, ex-offenders to walk the streets of the city and interrupt violence as they see it. I mean, that's something that people may wonder, but why should it be led by the health department? Well, at that time, we led it because there is this idea that violence can be treated also as a public health issue. It can be prevented, it can be treated, there are ways to intervene. And I think that going forward, we need to very strongly make the case of public health by tying it exactly as you said to whatever it is that people care about, whether it's international diplomacy or whether it's um, whether it's public safety, there is a role for public health. But we are the ones in this field who have to make the case. We have to insist on being at the table and even creating our own tables if we're not invited to it. No, no, no question, and a, a great place to conclude. I mean, the the, the reality is punishment incarceration are not suitable treatments for addiction or psychosis. Right. They're, they're barbaric treatments for it. They're 10th century treatments for it. And, um, and, and it's time we move past those because they're also ineffective treatments for it and the problems won't go away. Um, you know, I think it may have been daunting for you to be told you know, rewrite this book, uh, but but it's fortuitous because in the course of the year that you rewrote it, first of all, you came to the public's attention as a leading voice uh, in a way that you had, had not even been before and you'd had a distinguished career. Um, but also, you don't have to persuade anybody today that public health is central to their lives. And that's why this book, Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health by Dr. Lena Wen, is i think required reading for everybody it's a it's a it's an essential um look at 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 something that we now know is central in our lives but too many of us do not understand uh and it's it's it raises awareness in, in vital ways but it's also a great book a really inspiring story um and uh i i, I congratulate you on it and I commend it to everybody who is listening. You should go, you should buy it, you should read it. Um, and um, hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon to talk about other things or to talk about your book again. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, hope it, I hope it all goes well. And uh, thank you for spending this time with us. Of course. Thank you very much for having me on with you again, David, and great to join you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And for those of you who want to know the rest of what we've got going on here, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com, see what we've got coming up. Um, uh, you know, click on membership, support what we're doing if you if you, if you possibly can. Um, and we'll continue to cover these issues centrally because we think they are extremely important. Uh, and of course, at a moment like this, 
uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks a lot.